Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Doug Lee Maurice here. Good one ahead for you. Three parts to this, which makes it fun. We don't usually do them like this, but we are this time. Leading off, a really good interview with Derek Klassen, who is a film guy who breaks down quarterback play really well. I've had him on uh, my old podcast, uh, Takes by the Lake, to talk NFL stuff before. He did a breakdown of Justin Fields that I thought was great. And so Nathan and I talked with Derek for about 35 minutes about Justin Fields as an NFL prospect and why Derek thinks he's clearly the second best quarterback in this draft class. If you've been reading stuff about Justin Fields and maybe wondering why it maybe it feels a little bit like some people are out on him, uh, this is an especially illuminating conversation with Derek. So that's up first. Then Stephen Means checking in from Indianapolis after Ohio State's basketball win over Purdue in the Big Ten, tur- Big Ten Tournament quarterfinals. Nathan, Stephen, and I talk some hoops for about 20 minutes. And then we wrap up. Nathan and I, at the end, we look back a year ago. Uh, everybody's doing this, right? Eh, the pandemic started a year ago. My God, there were so many sports journalism stories. This is what we learned from the... I get it. Sports uh, changed. Life changed. Big deal, right? We all lived it. You don't need a huge refresher on it. But we had a conversation on the podcast right as it was happening a year ago. The last live podcast we did, the three of us together. So Nathan and I revisited that. What we think the future of like access in college football sports journalism might be which is not that interesting, but maybe you care about it because the access we get influences the stories we get and can write and the information you get. And just what we thought of last year, where we were right, where we were wrong. Don't go super long on that. And then the last little chunk of that is I have the 12-minute segment where we talked about what was happening. We were talking on the day that Mike DeWine a year ago was shutting down. uh, No fans at the NCAA tournament games in Ohio and all that stuff. Just the beginning of everything. And then obviously it snowballed and we didn't have a tournament. So if you want to relive that and laugh at what we knew and didn't know uh, a year ago. So that's it. Justin Fields, breakdown at the beginning, basketball in the middle, uh, looking back a year ago at coronavirus at the end. So like an hour and 20 minutes or so, but it's a good variety. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, We'll be back next week um, with more spring football preview stuff. Nathan's really working on some fun quarterback stuff that we'll get into both on the site at cleveland.com slash OSU and on the pod. Uh, Steven's going to be knee-deep in basketball. We'll continue the recruiting coverage, so we appreciate you guys joining us. Get ready 
for what's ahead on this weekend Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. All right. Unusual thing here on Buckeye Talk. Haven't done this in a while. We have an expert. Nathan, we have an actual expert. It's not just us, like, randomly saying stuff. Derek Klassen, one of the great quarterback film guys out there. Uh, I've, I've read him. I've listened to him in various places. He's been on my uh, other podcast back in the day. Um, and he wrote a Justin Fields piece that just made my eyes bulge out because it was exactly what needs to be put out there about Justin Fields. And I'm not saying, now listen, it was complimentary of Justin Fields, but even if it wasn't, I would have had Derek on because I trust him. So I trust Derek Klassen and what he says about quarterbacks and the thing that he's going to do. He's going to tell you about this story that he wrote. Nathan and I will talk to him about it, but he looks at everybody. So that's the difference too. It's like Nathan and I, we've watched every Justin Fields throw, but we don't know how he compares to Trey Lance and Zach Wilson and everybody else. Derek knows not just how he compares, how Justin compares to this class, but how he compares to like, every quarterback of the last five years. So Derek Klassen, so appreciative for your time. Thanks for joining us here on Buckeye Talk. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, if anyone wants to read that particular piece that you guys are talking about, you can go ch- check it out on Football Outsiders. Um, I've also, I charted Fields' entire season, um, all of his passes, and I wrote something about that on um, NBC, NBC Sports Edge. So um, I've got plenty of uh, Justin Fields content for everybody that wants it. So this is this is hardcore information again. So Football Outsiders, NBC Sports Edge, Google that. Google Derek's name, D E R R I K K L A S S E N. Did I get that right? Yes, sir. <laughs> if, if I missed it, I would just go three, two, one, and then I'd say it again. Right, right. <laughs> but I nailed it on the first time. So listen, go read this stuff. It was so informative, Derek. And I want to start. There's a couple areas I want to cover here, but. One of the lines of your piece, and Nathan, I'm sure this stood out to you as well on Football Outsiders. You talked about Justin Fields' accuracy. And when Justin Fields got to Ohio State, we didn't know much about him. I thought he would struggle to some degree in his first year as a starter. He never really did. He really was kind of ready almost immediately. But the thing that popped to me from the get-go was his accuracy. So I get it. He's accurate. But how accurate? How would you describe Justin Fields' accuracy, Derek, among the quarterbacks that you have studied? Well, so I've been personally charting quarterbacks since I think the 2016 class was the first one I started with. And he is literally the most accurate quarterback I've ever charted over that span. And there's been some good ones. And Joe Burrow was previously the record holder, so he's already smashed that. Um, and Joe Burrow, I mean, that was the big thing with Burrow, right? Was Burrow was, he was incredibly accurate to every part of the field. And I think that's the thing with Justin Fields. And what fascinates me about his accuracy is that it's not just like, oh, if there's an open guy, he's always going to hit it. I think any decent quarterback should be able to do that. What's fascinating with Fields is that if you perfectly need to be led a certain direction to get yards after the catch, he can do it. If you need a ball placed perfectly so that you can catch it over your back shoulder on like a fade, he can do it. If you need him to put the ball a little bit low and away so that you don't get your head taken off by a safety over the middle of the field, he can do that too. Like no, no matter what the window is, no matter what the situation is, Fields just has this almost otherworldly type of accuracy. So that blew my mind, Nathan, because like, right, we watched, we've watched every throw he's ever made. And I, I would agree. Like if someone said, is Justin Fields accurate? I mean, of course you would say he's accurate. But Nathan, I, like this, this means something to me, it, like in the context of other quarterbacks. 
Well, yeah, and I, I don't want to get too bogged down into the the next level stats, but there's one that I wanted to go into here that Derek goes into in his piece. And I had already been researching this kind of concept of why Justin Fields might be different than some of the other quarterbacks who've come through Ohio State and, and looking at some of the ways that NFL teams have been trying to predict, uh, look at college success and try to predict uh, NFL success. And the one thing to keep coming back to, completion percentage in and of itself can be deceptive. It doesn't take into account a lot of the other – it's not very nuanced. It's just you completed a pass. The, 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 the stat that you mentioned was completion percentage and then the average depth of target. Can you kind of go into what that means? Because that's the, that's the number that really jumped out at me in here was that that number is the one where he ranks the best out of these past six classes that you've looked at. And wh- why yeah. that's a better gauge of not just accuracy but also decision-making. Yeah, right. I, like my my accuracy charting is based basically on on depth of target. So I think after ten yards, you're getting extra points, if you will, for um, for accurate passes. And part of the thing too is is like I think with a lot of past Ohio State quarterbacks, there were a lot of gimme throws in the offense, just in terms of stuff that you were throwing like behind the line of scrimmage or maybe just throwing a ton of like shallow crossing routes. And with fields, that wasn't necessarily true. Like they really opened up the offense. They had a lot of, um, you know, 12 to 15 yard option routes that they were letting him throw. They had a ton more wide cross. I thought Um, they had a lot more like just straight drop back vertical stuff that I don't think they felt comfortable doing as often with other quarterbacks. Like Haskins could do it, but it wasn't like you didn't want to make it the core of the offense the way that they did with fields. And I think just the fact that they opened that up so comfortably with him and he executed at just an unbelievable level. Like, like I said, I think that really just sets him apart from not only previous Ohio state quarterbacks, but really most quarterbacks that you see in college nowadays, period. So can we, I want to, I do want to detour Nathan for a second on this because I want Derek's view on this Ohio State offense, because the thing, Derek, is that, and then I want to get into a point that you led with, which is a point that we talk about all the time here, but I'm curious how you think the world views it. But specifically this offense, we're like entering year five of, of what you would call um, the Ryan Day offense at Ohio State, right? That he had two years as the offensive coordinator. It was the last year of JT Barrett, the one year of Haskins in 17-18, then two years with Fields in 19 and 20. Is it is it sophisticated? Is it NFL-like? Does it does it set up quarterbacks for success? I'm curious just how you think this offense operates compared to other offenses you look at. And I did think, and then, we, well, I'm not going to ask six questions. That question first, I'm just curious for your take on sort of how Ryan Day runs offense with the Buckeyes. I think in terms of straight NFL concepts, they do, they do have plenty in the offense. I think, kind of like I mentioned, they have a lot more option routes in their in their offense and I think you're going to see ever at the NFL level because I think at the NFL level um, timing becomes a lot more important when you have better pass rushers and the windows are a lot tighter so you're going to have I think fewer of those option routes particularly down the field Um, and so fields might have a little bit of adjustment with that but I think just the fact that they trusted him with so much drop back stuff I think is, is really impressive and so much of it was vertical like they were letting him just I mean they were they were giving him like three four 15 plus yard routes and letting him to be very comfortable throwing all of those. And I don't think that that was the case with previous Ohio state quarterbacks. Like I mentioned, like I think they really took off a lot of the training wheels that was there. I think, especially for Barrett um, and maybe a little bit. So with Haskins, um, but I think they, they pretty much stripped all of that stuff down and really just let fields be a great quarterback. Nathan, I struggle with that at times, whether 
right? Is it, does Ryan day have great quarterbacks and great skill guys? And that's what, and like those players make his offense look great or is his offense so well designed that it makes the players look great. And I guess Nathan, like ideally it's all a little bit, everything, but sometimes I'm always curious with the guys like Derek, like I want to know because Nathan, sometimes when we're right on top of it, I can't tell. Yeah. And I think it's been more interesting for someone like Derek to, to have his analysis of this because I didn't watch Dwayne Haskins that much. So this is, we, we, we keep, everyone keeps making this back-to-back comparison right now because those are the two Ryan day quarterbacks. They came in back-to-back 2018, 2019 transition. And just from things from talking to you, Doug and other people, it seems like that what they ask Justin Fields to do things that Dwayne Haskins was never asked to do. Uh, and maybe vice versa. I don't know, but, but I guess as you've compared those two things head to head, did you see a big change in the way that Ohio state used its quarterback simply because it was able to get something out of Justin Fields that it couldn't get out of Dwayne Haskins? Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes down, at least to me, the fact that fields and he gets knocked for this fields gets knocked a lot for being, Oh, he holds the ball too long in the pocket. But I think, he does that because he can in the sense that one, he's very tough and like um, he's very tough and confident in the pocket. He's not scared of getting hit by pass rushers or whatever. Um, but I think he really trusts himself to be able to go from one to two to three and hit a backside, you know, comeback or a backside dig or a backside vertical. Like not many quarterbacks in college have that kind of confidence to get to a deeper route like that on like the backside of a concept three seconds into a play. And the fact that fields has that in his arsenal, I think is really special and, for as much as I thought Haskins was a decent prospect, a lot of what made Haskins good was that he could kind of go one to two on, you know, opening to whatever his play side was and just be like, oh, okay, well, this isn't open. I can check it down. And he was really good at just taking safe yards that way. Fields is more like, oh, my play side's not open. I guess I can just throw 25 yards down the field on the backside um, into like a covered two hole. Like, like it's just insane that he can get away with that. And I just... I don't think Haskins could do that, and I don't think many quarterbacks in college period can do that. I would like I like to welcome Derek to the only conversation that I've had for the past two years, which is the <laughs> Justin Fields holding the ball conversation, which I've only asked that quarterback and Ryan Day about Nathan. I mean, it's like we talk about it all the time, Nathan, because it's all about this balance. Well, I had a specific question about that, and I didn't want it to jump too far ahead in, in what your line of questioning might have been. I was watching another um, a YouTube breakdown by a guy named Alex Rollins. And one of the things that he brought up about Fields was that his average time to throw this, I think it was just this past season, was like 3.11 seconds, which I think was third in the nation. And like my less sophisticated brain, I, I wasn't sure exactly how to process that. Is that telling me that that Justin Fields – has a ton of time and that has maybe helped him be successful. Is it telling me that, that Justin Fields creates a lot of time and that helps him be successful. And I guess the next step is at the NFL level, will you usually have that kind of time or is it telling me that he's going to be more used, more accustomed to letting those, um, those routes develop downfield. And that could actually be another precursor to, to his success at the next level. Yeah. I think for him in particular, it's basically a benefit because like I said, it's not, I think there's two different ways you can arrive at having that that uh, very long, you know, average time uh, in the pocket or whatever. And one of them is if uh, you kind of just don't know what you're looking at and you, you kind of uh, you get to just looking coast to coast and you don't know where where your open receivers are. With Fields, I think it's just that he's very confident, like you said, letting plays develop and letting routes um, get open. Um, and I think also when he needs to, he does do a very good job getting outside the pocket. Um buying space for himself, um, making sure he can stay clean and get that time to make throws. So I think to me, it's more of a benefit, especially because 
I think with a guy like Fields, it's so much easier in the NFL to maybe teach him like, hey, Justin, like maybe just check this one down or we can build in stuff to the offense to where like, hey, you don't have to throw this 25 yard vertical um, four seconds into a play. You don't have to do that. I think it's easier to teach him that than to teach him um, than to teach any quarterback that like they can hold the ball this long and be this confident um, the way they are deep into plays like Justin Fields. So I think it would be easier to scale him back than to ever get any quarterback to where he's at right now. That makes sense. Yeah. And Nathan, that felt like that was the discussion for the past two years. It felt like Ryan Day was like trying to rein Justin Fields in at times. And Justin Fields was like, no, no, I can make a play. And Ryan Day was like, throw it away, throw it away sometimes. And that was the discussion we constantly had. But I think Derek obviously is, ex- is exactly right on this. You want somebody with the skill set and the confidence and rein them in rather than be like, hey, quit throwing it out of bounds every time you get a pass rusher in your face. You've got to make a play sometimes. I think, Derek, you led your piece, and I think the, the people listening to this would know this, but I thought it was important that you put it out into the world that it's like, hey, like, don't bring Craig Krenzel and Troy Smith and Terrell Pryor and Braxton Miller like into this, and JT Barrett into this conversation. It's just, it's just, it's, it's uniforms. That's all it is. There's nothing else about it. Now, I did think there was a time when that did make sense because Ohio State was a run first school. Right. It always was Ryan Day. I mean, Urban Meyer wanted to run the quarterback. So Ryan Day's offense is the first time ever in 100 years that they've been a pass first school. Now, that might I think maybe Joe Germain and David Boston and, and some people like that. John Cooper might there might be a window there where they would argue with that. But Ohio State has not produced a great NFL quarterback. Right. But it doesn't matter. Haskins, at least, is applicable in some ways. But I agree with your assessment Haskins to me was like a point guard, bing, bang, boom. And Fields to me is like a point guard who can score. He's like the modern point guard. He's like, well, I can distribute it, but I also, I want to get my own, I'm going to score 30 myself, right? I I don't think it's fair. So you can't hold JT Barrett and anybody earlier than that against Fields. You know, the instinct of like, hey, Haskins went 15th. He got released. He wasn't very good. Blame some of that on Washington, of course, but blame some of it on Dwayne. I mean, Dwayne's responsible for some of that. And I thought Dwayne, to some degree, when he came out, it was a little bit of a referendum on did Ryan Day make Dwayne Haskins look good or did Dwayne Haskins make Ryan Day look good? And I think the answer to that so far is Ryan Day made Dwayne Haskins look good. I still think Dwayne has a shot. I think if Dwayne got in a better system, he'd be okay. I think he has to get his head on straight. He could be okay. But completely different quarterbacks, Derek. Right? Completely different quarterbacks. Will there be a temptation in the NFL to hold Dwayne's lack of success against Justin and why or why not? Is that, is that reasonable at all? I mean, to me, it's not very reasonable. I think it's like slightly more reasonable, kind of like you said, than holding, um, you know, the pre Ryan day quarterbacks against him, like holding the pre Ryan day quarterbacks against him, I think is just insane. Cause it's not the same offense. Like it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's a completely different era at Ohio state. You could say um, for me, I think Haskins is the only one that sort of makes sense because it was like, he was like full on Ryan day quarterback too. Like this was when Ryan day took over his head coach. So like it was kind of his program. So I guess it's an okay data point to compare fields to, but um, you know, I said it in my piece, like they're just entirely different quarterbacks. It's not like they have very similar profiles. Like fields is one more physically talented. I think his arm is better. Um, and I think he's a considerably better athlete. Um, and just their play styles are different. Kind of like you said, Haskins was really good at distributing the ball and making sure the offense could 
pretty much just stay on its tracks. And Ryan Day ran a really good offense and they had really good skill players so that he could do that. Fields was more like he was kicking up the gas to like as high as it could go and sprinting off the rails uh, if he could. Um, and he did a really good job playing that way. I think he took the offense to a level that it hadn't seen before. So I think they're just very different players. And personally, I think it's not very fair to hold Haskins against him, even if NFL teams may be doing it or certain analysts or whatever. I want to pull, I want to jump back a second to the accuracy discussion because a lot of times like Baker Mayfield, when the Browns took him number one, that was sort of centered on his accuracy. A lot of that, right now, you know, some other stuff, he's a winner and whatever, but like Baker Mayfield's sort of natural skill set is not through the roof. You know, I mean, he's, he wasn't Josh Allen. That was a whole thing. That was like Josh Allen's skill set versus sort of Baker Mayfield accuracy, efficiency kind of thing. And that was a debate. I don't know. When you say, Derek, the reason my ears perk up when you say how accurate Justin Fields is, is how often do you see a guy who's that accurate who also has this athletic skill set? Because sometimes I feel like guys are accurate because they have to make up for the fact that they can't escape pressure and run 40 yards at the drop of a hat. But Justin Fields can do both. Is that rare? I mean, I think it's special. And I think especially when you look at the the absolute best young quarterbacks in the NFL right now, they more or less fall into that. I think Deshaun Watson is a really good example. I think Watson's accuracy coming out of Clemson was good, but not great. And I think he's gotten a lot better at it now. But like, that's the thing with Watson is he's now is that he's just incredibly accurate, incredibly confident. And when the play breaks down, when he needs to, um, he does a really good job getting outside the pocket. Um, and Fields is kind of that, but even better athletically. Like Deshaun Watson is like, I don't know, a, a B among quarterbacks, like in terms of athleticism, he can do everything you need him to, but maybe he's not going to kill you. Justin Fields is like legitimately almost like Cam Newton, a tier athlete. Like that dude can, you can have like a full quarterback run game with him, quarterback power option, whatever. Um, and if, you know, a play breaks down, he's, he could beat you for 30 yards. He did it against Clemson. He did it against um, Alabama at certain points. Like he's just an unbelievable athlete. And so, like you said, a lot of these guys that are super accurate, they kind of have to be because they don't have anything else. Like Drew Brees, you know, for example, that like what he's not going to run on you. Um, but I mean, Fields has the accuracy and, I mean, probably he's going to walk into the league and be a top five athlete at the position. I do. It's hard. And I don't want to, well, we can get into this now. It's always like Nathan, we've spent how many years? It's like, well, Justin Fields, who's he like, who's the comparison, but I don't like the Cam Newton comparison because I like the athletic comparison, but I don't think Cam's ever thrown it like Justin, like in terms of accuracy, just watch his throwing motion, watch him throw the ball. I mean, Cam's the stinking MVP but he was never a classic thrower. I think Justin is like a classic thrower who also can run when he needs to. So I've had trouble. I know people, I think there's some Dak Prescott stuff. I at times have called him like a bigger Russell Wilson. He knows Deshaun Watson. He works out with Quincy Avery and it's like this Justin Fields, Quincy Avery, Deshaun Watson trio that gets a lot of run. I think, I think there's something there that's reasonable. Nathan, I don't know. Like, you know, we've been going through this we're the layman, Nathan. I don't know where we land on like who we think of when we think of Justin Fields necessarily. 
I mean, we, we've dropped some other names out there. Aaron Rodgers is one that I thought that w- was an interesting name that, that we had through you. I think for the first one to throw that out there. And Derek mentioned three names when he was talking about, I, I think you all, I almost want to set aside the athletic thing and talk about just how he plays quarterback. And there were three names that you dropped out there, Derek, and two of them we've already mentioned, Cam Newton and, and Deshaun Watson. But the third one was Ryan Tannehill, and which I thought was an interesting one. Why do you see a, a similarity there? And in what ways could Justin Fields potentially be better than that? Yeah, so Tannehill, I think, is uh, of all the, you know, uh, the Shanahan, like, wide zone play action offense or whatever, um, I think Tannehill is maybe the best at that right now. Um, And one, I mean, he just has a a phenomenal arm. I think his arm has always been really underrated. I think maybe just because nobody wanted to watch this Miami Dolphins team because nobody cared. Um, But I think he also sort of shows the same, you know, kind of issue that Fields has of holding the ball. I think Fields is like overall better at understanding where all of his outlets are, but Tannehill does the same thing where he's very confident holding the ball for a very long time in the pocket. And he's not afraid to take a hit to throw 30 yards down the field if he needs to. And I think that's why the Titans vertical offense worked um, as well as it did, um, at least with Arthur Smith calling the plays. So I think Fields is a little bit more accurate than Tannehill is. And I think um, overall he's a better athlete, but I think just in terms of that play style of being very confident, holding the ball in the pocket, not being afraid to take hits or sacks at the, you know, potential uh, reward of getting like a big play down the field. I think I see a lot of that um, from fields. What's the difference in your mind between a high risk, high reward quarterback and sort of like a reckless quarterback. And I thought of this in relation also to, one of the things that impresses me the most about fields and I, when you're doing these, these breakdowns, I don't know how much you think of things in terms of intangibles, but like his toughness has always really stood out to me. And people got to see that a lot, obviously in the Clemson game where he kind of gets snapped in half and still comes back in and, and, you know, laser show. So, but, but he, he plays with a lot of toughness, but without playing like reckless, like, like a reckless abandon, I guess, how, how do you see those two things balancing out for him? Like that, that, that need for him to be able to take those shots downfield, but also largely kind of playing under control for at least most of these past two years. Right. I, I mean, for one, the toughness, I mean, anybody who watched the Clemson game, like they, there's no denying that one. That's probably one of his best traits. But to me, I, I think for field, it comes down to a lot of, He's very aggressive in the sense that he's willing to hold the ball and is looking for these plays downfields and he's hunting for the big play. But I don't think he's someone who pulls the trigger recklessly on those plays. Like he won't force the ball out of his hand to make sure that he gets like just for the sake of throwing down the field. He's going to look for it for as long as possible, but he's not going to be like, oh, well, I guess I looked for it. So now I have to throw it like you know, Josh Allen is kind of someone who like, if he gets fixated on throwing down the field, he's going to do it. Um, And that works for him. But I don't think Fields is that way. I think Fields gets fixated on it. um, And it'll run him into sacks sometimes because he he really likes holding the ball. But I don't think he's someone who's going to just see double coverage and be like, ah, well, I guess I have nothing else to do. I'll throw it. I think he does a really good job of looking for the big play, but still doing a really good job of, of picking his spots correctly. And I think not to make the the overzealous comparison to like Aaron Rodgers, but like that's why Aaron Rodgers is so good is that he has this unbelievable sense for like how to walk that fine line between aggression and not being too reckless. And isn't that a thing that Russell Wilson is a guy who takes a lot of sacks, right? Because he's Mm. doing that kind of thing. And it's always the debate. People have come around. They understand the idea now that sacks are, are a quarterback stat more than an offensive line stat. 
And like, I expect Justin to maybe take some sacks in the NFL, but I don't think he's going to throw a hundred picks. Right. And it's like, sacks aren't great. I mean, sacks kill drives, but if you're trying to make a big play and you're looking for a trade-off, I'd rather you take a sack than throw a pick. Cause at least you maybe have a chance to survive, or at least you can punt it back and get him next time. But I think he's going to make Derek to me, it's a good trade-off for him because the boom is going to be worth the occasional busts where he takes a sack, because I think his top end skill is going to lead to big plays. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, uh, Russell Wilson is that way. Um, Deshaun Watson is still largely that way. Um, even though Josh Allen is a little bit more like reckless as a passer, he's very much that way where he will kind of take sacks at the expense of maybe getting off this, um, these boom type of plays. And I think um, like we've all said to this point, I think fields is so good at finding those boom plays that the handful of sacks that he might take above whatever the NFL average is like, I think you just live with it because he's making so many good plays. Otherwise that it's like those handful of bad plays aren't really going to sink his overall game. All right. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it so far, you want to make sure you follow Derek on Twitter at QB class. That's QB K L A S S. And then there's this alternate Twitter account, Derek, where I was just uh, running through it and there's Justin Fields clips all over it. It's QB class clips. Q-B-K-L-A-S-S-C-L-I-P-S. And you just have a people want to go look at good Justin Fields plays and interesting Justin Fields plays. People aren't going to come on this podcast and waste their time with us if they're not getting something out of it. Go follow Derek. He is one of the best quarterback breakdown guys out there. And the context matters when you get into the draft. Okay, I want to know about Justin Fields, but you want to know about him in regards to Trey Lance and Mac Jones and Zach Wilson and everybody else. And Nathan, that's going to lead us to this. Derek, what is happening? (laughs) Like what? Why all this stuff, right? Nathan, we were at a point at the beginning of the year, like sort of as the season was starting, you would find, I don't know what, 10% or 15% of the people out in the world who would say like, hold on one second on the Trevor Lawrence is the sure number one pick thing. Cause let me show you a guy, right? You know, it was never 50 50, but it was out there. Now it feels like we're at the point where Justin Fields is not even the number two quarterback in this draft class. Nathan first from our layman point, what have you thought of that evolution of the evaluation of Justin Fields, Nathan? When, especially three games into this season, when Fields was almost perfect, it was just doing from an accuracy standpoint, from a um, from a just a, a production standpoint was was almost perfect through the first few games. And then he played the worst game of his career up to that point. Yes. And I think that's I think one of the things that has worked against him, the, the way that the covid stuff worked against Justin Fields the most this year is that it just reduced the number of games he played. So just these these couple of bad games he had were magnified. I think they take up a greater percentage of the games he played this year. It certainly hurt him as far as like his Heisman Trophy chances. And I think it's something that's still trailing him a little bit as you go into to draft evaluation because people naturally look back over, well, what were his last, what was his 2020 season? And there's a greater percentage of his 2020 season against pretty solid defenses that don't look as good. If you had been able to mix in a couple of other, you know, non-conference games where he blew the doors off of people, it might look very different right now. All right. What do you think's happening here, Derek? How I've, as you said, I've used studied Justin and studied all the quarterbacks and then sort of filtered through what's out there with what people are talking about. I mean, I think Nathan hit it pretty much on the head. Like I think uh, not having as many games hurt him, especially when it's like 
he did have two pretty rough games this year. The Indiana game and the Northwestern game for, for kind of different reasons were really rough for him. And, you know, when those are two of the, what, seven or eight games you ended up playing, like, yeah, that looks bad. But the problem, the thing is, like, those are maybe the only two bad games of his entire career. So, like, is it really worth holding it against him? Um, and I think people have done it now, which kind of stinks. But um, I think when you have that on top of, you know, Zach Wilson comes up and has this absolute cupcake schedule. Um, and granted, he plays really well and he's a, a plenty good quarterback prospect in his own right. But he puts up like these just absolutely bonkers numbers um, when he has this team that is just outgunning everyone every week. Um, and so I think when you have this flashy new toy who plays a lot like Mahomes, and I think that that's helping people's perception of Wilson. So when you have all of that for a guy like Wilson compared to, you know, like Nathan said, Fields kind of playing on a limited sample and happening to have two of his worst games of his career. It's just like, it makes for this really weird circumstance where Fields probably gets pushed down much further than he should. Cause I, I kind of mentioned this in the piece, like to me, Fields is closer to Lawrence than he is to the other two guys. And you said in the piece, so Lawrence, a lot of people think, you know, maybe Lawrence is whatever, the best guy since Andrew Luck, once mm-hmm. in a 10-year guy. In your mind, Justin Fields would be a very reasonable number one draft pick in a draft if there wasn't a guy like Trevor Lawrence, right? That if if Trevor Lawrence didn't exist, you think it would make sense for the Jaguars to be like, yeah, no, Justin Fields, he's worth it. We'll take him number one, and he wouldn't be out of place with Jared Goff and Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and Joe Burrow and other quarterbacks who have gone number one in the draft. Yeah, I mean, I think he's better than all of them, like straight up. He just happens to, like you said, he just happens to be in this class with, you know, a generational guy like um, Trevor Lawrence. But like to me, I think, you know, Fields is a lot. He, he's just as accurate as Joe Burrow, and he's a lot more physically talented. So I think you would have to take Fields. Uh, to me, he's better than Kyler Murray was as a prospect. Um, trying to think of the others, like he's better than Baker. Baker was, he's better than I think Jameis was. And I liked Jameis a lot. Yep. Um, I think he's better than Goff was like, he's better than, I mean, pretty much everyone to me going back to, um, I guess luck is where you can kind of stop that. Um, but I mean, to me fields is, yeah, he, he's a lot closer to Lawrence and like a legit first overall guy than whatever he's getting pinned as now. So what is happening? So what, I <laughs> what is this last Nathan? Like we've been watching. So you guys explained why. All right. Shorter schedule, couple bad games. Well, but but, but I think the better the better question is, okay, so now compare Justin Fields head to head with Zach Wilson. Like why is yeah. Wilson getting pulled ahead of him so consistently now in what seems to be the the group think, or maybe it's just a consensus of people who are evaluating this. I think one of it is that I think if you just look at how they produced this particular season even though it was significantly easier for Wilson to do so, Wilson had a better season because, I mean, it was just really easy for him to do so. And I think people kind of latch on to having, you know, him having a better last year. Um, So I think that helps. Kind of like I mentioned, I think Wilson playing like this crazy, you know, running around with his chicken, like a chicken with its head cut off, like Mahomes, I think is kind of helping his case because now everyone is wanting to hunt for the next Mahomes in the same vein that 10 years ago, everyone was trying to hunt for the next Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. It's just, it's like an unreasonable expectation, but people want the thing that looks like the best. And I think Wilson, just in terms of play style, looks the most like Mahomes. I don't think he's near that physically talented or as accurate as Mahomes is, even though he's plenty accurate. But I think that's why people are getting fixated 
on Wilson over a guy like Fields, who, while a good athlete and can create, is really a lot more of like a true legitimate pocket passer. So I don't know. I mean, we don't have to make predictions, but I mean, there's some weird stuff where I don't know. I guess you can find some stuff a little bit, Nathan, where like people really think fields might fall. I mean, it feels like there are two very natural landing spots for him. I mean, the idea that this kid is from Georgia and goes back and goes to the Falcons at four and is just like, oh, hey, Georgia. Hey, Atlanta. You want a dude to love for the next 12 years who's going to lead your team to the playoffs and be like everything you want in a sports superstar here. I like that. And I also maybe like the idea. I mean, to your point, I, I might buy give Justin Fields a year to watch and don't throw him in. If they keep Matt Ryan, let him. I mean, like I, the Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes thing, like I, I, I could be in on that. Um, and then Carolina, if Carolina jumps up, I don't want to overestimate this. I think people are faulty if they're trying to do any kind of, hey, Urban Meyer was at Ohio State. Justin Fields, Justin Fields is Ryan Day's guy, and Trevor Lawrence is so obvious. That's not a thing. I am more in on Matt Rule and Ryan Day work together. Ryan Day can give Matt Rule every single nugget that Matt Rule wants about is this guy a franchise quarterback. And I don't, where's, where's Carolina? Like eight. I don't know that Fields would get there. But if Carolina says, you know what? Hey, Miami, we're going to get ahead of the Falcons. And Matt Rule saying, like, listen, Ryan Day's my guy. He's vouching for this guy. That I could see too. I think it's going to work out for Justin Fields. And my guess, Derek, would be one of those two, something like that. But I'm still, you know, we just covered Zach Wilson. I don't know what happened that the Jets were just like, oh, nope, not at all. But maybe it's just because they're the Jets. But I think Justin Fields is going to wind up in a good spot, Derek. Yeah, I, I still think he's going to end up going very high. I mean, to me, if if he falls past Atlanta, something has gone like, like there must be something that we don't know about Justin Fields if he falls past Atlanta, you know? Um, I think the point about the Panthers trading up is really good because not even just because of the rule thing, but like they've been linked to every stinking quarterback this this cycle. Like it seems like they really, really want one. So they are a great candidate to be the ones that go up and try to get a guy like Justin Fields um, – you know, maybe right behind the Jets or whatever. So I think, you know, kind of like you mentioned, there is some stuff that it seems like Fields is falling a little bit in some mocks or whatever. But I think by the time the end of April comes or whatever, like he's still going to end up going top five. I think a, a, a former five-star quarterback with the kind of production and traits that Fields has, like there's just no way he falls very far. It, it just can't happen. Nathan, Nathan, what do you think? And then I want to make sure you get anything last uh, stuff here for Derek before we let him go. I, I think there's some NFL GM out there who is looking at this the same way Derek looks at it, I think, and who is who's already resigned himself that he's not going to get Trevor Lawrence and sees Justin Fields as something better than just a consolation prize. They're like, wait a second, you're going to tell me that I can get this guy who we might be whoever drafts Justin Fields. I can you, I can already tell you right at the first at the teleconference, the press conference that that GM does is going to be like, well, we had him ranked right there with Trevor Lawrence and we're really excited to get him. I, that's my prediction for NFL draft day, whether they turn out to be right, who knows? But I, 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 I'm, I think that there is that there probably are NFL GMs out there who legitimately see Zach Wilson higher for whatever reason, but I'm, there's multiple ones I'm imagining that, that see Justin Fields ahead of him and are going to be really excited to get him. Either he falls to them or that they don't even have to trade up that far to get him. So, so in the end, Derek, is this, does this just happen to a guy every couple of years? There's like an overly, like an over nitpick cycle where it's like, Oh, he was a super highly rated recruit. He played at a, a really good program. 
He won a ton of games. He did a lot of really good stuff. But then you last like this. I mean, you know, we've all seen it happen. Is this is this just what that is? You just some for some reason, people latch on to a guy where they kind of talk themselves into this guy has more problems than he really does. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, it does just kind of happen sometimes. Like, I think that was the case with Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson fell to 10th or 12th, 12th or something like that. Yeah, like, and if you, I think Watson was a slightly less clean prospect than Fields is. Like, I think Fields is more accurate um, and a better athlete. But, like, what Watson did to Alabama, like, at the peak of what it felt like that Alabama dynasty was at the time, they, the offense is significantly better now. But at the time, that felt like the peak of what Alabama was. And he was the Kingslayer. And he, like, a guy like that to fall to 12th is just, like, absurd. And to go behind Mitch Trubisky, no less. Like, it just made no sense. So I, I think if Fields does fall, it's very similar to that, where just for whatever reason, there's been this massive overthinking of a player that is, you know, for years has been telling us he's great. Derek, one more reminder, where can the people find your excellent work? Yeah, so you guys can find me on Twitter at QB Class, QBKLASS. Um, you, can get, you guys can find me at Football Outsiders. I've been doing um, you know, a lot of NFL draft stuff, both with Fields and um, some other prospects. And you can find me at NBC Sports Edge, which is where I do a lot of my um, quarterback charting posting stuff. Awesome stuff. Derek, we're so glad to have you. This has been a tremendous conversation. I learned something. Nathan learned something. And I know our listeners learned something. So thank you so much. Everybody listen to this. Make sure you follow Derek's work. And thanks so much for joining us on Buckeye Talk. Thanks for having me. All right, back on Buckeye Talk for some basketball talk. It's 5.30 on Friday. Ohio State just finished off an overtime win over Purdue. Nathan and I are in our homes. Stephen Means is in Indianapolis. Stephen, how would you characterize that win for the Buckeyes? That's a good Purdue team that had beaten them twice before. They gave it away and they got it back. That, I mean, that's on the resume. That's a good win. That's a good win. It's a good win, but it's also, I think, what you've come to expect from this team, whether you like it or not. They come out strong and they throw a good first punch, but then at some point they're going to go cold on offense and they're not going to be able to get stops. I think they had an eight-minute and 20-second allotted amount of time in the second half where they couldn't score. And then they had another four-minute four stretch in the second half where they also couldn't score, which is why they blew an 18-point lead. But at this point, that's the script with this team. It's not about what happens in the first half. I was texting with Texas yesterday when I was responding to everybody individually, and I kept saying – you're not going to learn a lot about this team in the first half because I expect them to do exactly what they did against Minnesota and come out strong. It's what happens really in the last 12 minutes of the game is where you find out whether that Ohio State's going to win a game or not. And they almost gave it away for the second straight tournament game. It's hard. I mean, I get it when coaches don't love to talk about how you almost lost when you did win, right? I think it's one of the things coaches hate the most because coaches are always like, what happened today? Win or loss? Winning is hard. We won, didn't we? We won. So I do get that. But on the other hand, Nathan, you watch this thing, right? Did you watch it, Nathan? Right? You and I are sitting I did, at home yeah. watching it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody's watching this with an eye on what's it mean for next. And so when they repeat a pattern, Nathan, it is a good – they rallied. Like, credit to them for not actually losing. But the way they – as Stephen said, the way they let Purdue back in the game is so familiar. Everybody listening to this who cares about Ohio State basketball, I think in the second round of the NCAA tournament in that 2-7 game – is going to be like, oh, my God, are they going to blow this? And and this did nothing to alleviate any of those feelings, Nathan. 
you know, it's a combination of things right now. And it's, I know I've brought up the defensive analytics before as they relate to Ohio state and why that might give people some pause as far as them being able to make a deep run. But to me it is, and Steven, I, I'm, I'm curious what your impression is here. Cause you've seen them, you've watched them more than I have this year, but when, when the offense stagnates and it's, it, it seems like it's happening somewhat consistently as you've kind of pointed out in the second halves, when the, when this offense stagnates, like when do you play your best defense, every team in basketball, when do you play your best defense is when you're executing your offense too, because you're getting back and setting up your defense. When this team stagnates on offense, it has enough defensive deficiencies that that really seems to snowball fast. And I thought we saw that a little bit today. I thought early on, and, and, and we don't want to get too much into one game because, but I think it was a little bit reflective of, of some bigger problems that are happening with Ohio state in that early on in this game, I thought, Purdue was forcing things a little bit inside with Trevon Williams, which is ironic because he obviously picked it up and was great in the second half. But early on, he was forcing it, I thought, underneath. And Ohio State was going out and running with it, and that's where they built that lead. I think if, if Ohio State had played more efficiently offensively early on, that 18-point that deficit might not have happened. But certainly in the second half, I, I see Ohio State just standing around too much. I see guys not making that second pass. And when you're not doing that, you're not getting a good shot. We're not getting a good shot. You're making fewer shots. When you're making fewer shots, you're not setting up your defense. It's just the, the right now they've picked a bad time of the year for that spiral to really set in. I don't like Ohio State's offense, and I really haven't liked it for three years, but it, it seems very first read based where if the first action isn't there, as you pointed out, Nathan, they stand around and they don't really have anything. And so it turns into, hey, CJ or hey, Dwayne, go make something happen. There's no second read often. And late in the game, you started to see some adjustments to that with Seth Towns getting involved where you brought Dwayne Washington off of the drag double screen. And if it's not there, you kick it back to Seth Towns. And they got points out of it. Seth scored twice on that, which opened up a three for Dwayne Washington to hit. The problem is they haven't done that all season. It's usually the first read thing you see. And then as you pointed out, it's a lot of standing around in a stagnant offense that doesn't produce much if people aren't making shots. I'll say I don't like – let's be honest. I haven't watched them. Whatever. I've watched them last two games. I don't like the way they talk about it sometimes. I feel like they act like this stuff happens to them, and I want to get into Holtman's testiness. The difference in ball movement between the first half and the second half is like two different teams. Their ball movement in the first half and at times is beautiful, and they score. It's not coincidental. They don't go cold. It's not that they go cold. It's that they stop moving the ball and their shot selection sucks. And they start taking contested stuff off the dribble, fadeaway stuff. When they move the ball, listen, they do not. EJ Liddell, maybe yes. Other than that, they do not have great one-on-one. Even EJ is not going to make his own shot. They don't have ISO guys. I don't want Dwayne Washington ISO ball. It's all about if they move the ball. When they move the ball, they're really good. When they don't move the ball, they can't score. And like, it's a direct correlation. So like, I don't, but it's not that they go cold. It's like, what happened? It's not a defensive thing. I don't know why Nathan, not Nathan, Steven, why do they stop moving the ball? Is it because they get ahead and they get stagnant? But watch, I want to go back in this game and count up in the first half, how many passes they made each possession before they shot and how many in the second half. That's all it is. They know how to be good and they stop doing it. And I put that on Chris Holtman. And, and maybe I'm wrong, and I'm coming in late in the year after watching two games. We know what it looks like when they move the ball, and we know what happens when they don't. This is not same ball movement, missing open shots, right? That's the, if that happens, that happens. Guys go cold, and then you give up a run, and I get it. Sometimes you just get you miss good shots. It's not good shots. It's the quality of shots, Stephen, that is starkly different. Yeah, I think EJ Liddell used the perfect world. They get complacent. 
And that is on the coach. That's on the coach to motivate his team and get his team in the right position to continue to do what you just did for 20 minutes. You just showed us what you could do when you move the ball and you play the right style of basketball. That's on the coach to make sure they continue to do that. And for some reason, the second half hits, and I mean, they, I mean, they closed that first half out the best way you want to close out a first half in a Big Ten tournament game against one of the top 15 teams in the country. I don't know why that's not a conversation to continue to do that at halftime. I don't know why that's not a conversation when you see it starting to slip, when you call that timeout because you can feel the run coming. That's what Coleman did early. After Jaden Ivey hit a couple threes, he called a timeout. Why that's not a conversation instead of just that's March, that's Big Ten basketball, that's basketball. I understand basketball is a game of runs, but it's also how you respond to those runs. And right now they don't respond well when a team makes a run. Because they play iso ball. Listen, Mm -hmm. the Kyle Young first half against Purdue, it was not Kyle Young. It was open player X hitting the shot when he's open, but he got open because they took advantage of Purdue having big guys in. They had their big guy come out, but they moved the ball and Kyle Young was wide open on all of his threes. Credit to him for making them, but it's not coincidental. And then it's like, well, why didn't they make threes in the second half? Because guys were covered. Now, Justin Arns misses open shots. If you're telling me Justin Arns is shooting you out of a game, he goes cold sometimes, man. I don't know what's up Mm. with that. He's just cold. But Nathan, that's why in the second half, then when I say they don't have an NBA guy, right? If they are going to get into ISO ball, mano a mano, and there were some Purdue guys, Purdue came back throwing the ball inside, but they also had some guys do some ISO stuff, right? And just hit shots. I don't like Ohio State's chances in any of that stuff. And when they stop moving it, I think what is a small talent deficit relative to how good they are as a team, that's when it shows up when they don't share the ball. Right. And I think we've seen some teams in the Big Ten the last few years where maybe you have you just have that one NBA guy and there's nights where he's on and nights when he's off and you have to find a way to grind out a win. And that's what I'm not don't have a lot of confidence right now that Ohio State in this tournament would grind out a win on a night when its offense isn't there, because I feel like they're always going to have to be trying to catch up on defense. I I just they they don't seem like they're going to be defensively solid enough to to withstand a night where the offense stagnates like that. They've got to be more crisp than they were. And Stephen, how often this year have you seen them play almost 40 minutes, maybe 40 minutes of ball movement, playing together, work it around, don't play other ball? Have they done that sometimes for full games? Yeah, they have. They did it the first time they played Iowa. They did it the first time they played Illinois. They did it when they beat Wisconsin. For the most part against Michigan, they did it. Michigan was just a better team in that scenario. So they've shown – that's why back when when people were – when you want to say smoke screen and maybe they weren't as good as we thought they were, they were. They just stopped doing those things that were leading to success. Because for some – I don't know – I don't want to say the Michigan game broke them, but that was the first time. I mean, they played well and they didn't win a game. And that was Mm -hmm. probably the first time all season that happened. And as we can see since then – four-game losing streak, and they've been blowing leads ever since. But, yeah, they've shown what they can be when they want to play a full 40 minutes of quality basketball. Chris Holtman got a little testy post-game about the idea of, like, were you shell-shocked when you blew this lead? And he was like, he interrupted the question. It wasn't from one of us. Good question. And he interrupted it to say, no, 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 no. That's basketball. That's basketball. That's basketball. And I do get that. And I do think the media can be weird sometimes. That if a basketball team is up 10 to nothing – the most likely outcome of the next five minutes is not that team A is going to be up 20 to nothing. It's that it's going to be 15, 15. It's a game of runs. We get that. But where I disagree is that it is not victimhood. 
they are doing it to themselves. So I find it interesting, Stephen, that he got as testy as he did, because I think he would argue and coaches have been arguing it since James Smith hung the peach basket. It's a game of runs. It is. But it's not like they can't have some control over those runs and they allow opponents to get on runs when they stop moving the ball on offense. What do you make of where Chris Holtman is with this criticism of this team that having won this game, they're going to be a two seed now in the NCAA tournament, which is great. And they deserve credit for that. But yet, as we've talked here and as every fan listening who cares about this basketball team, of course, it's a valid criticism. What do you think Holtman is thinking of it? One, I think he's tired of answering questions about his team blowing double-digit leads, but that's too bad. Stop blowing double-digit leads. We'll stop asking about it. It's what it boils down to there. I, I do think that – I don't want to – to your point, yes, basketball is a game of runs, but I do think sometimes coaches just use that as a, a blank answer when there's more to it. There's a team made a run, and then there's a team made a run, and you didn't respond correctly to it. Yeah, you're right. You went up 10 nothing then it's 15 to 15. Okay, the next logical thing here in this situation is you probably go up 22 to 17 or you're trailing 22 to 17. Not it went 15 to 15, and if you don't figure things out now, you're down by 15 points. And yep. that's where Ohio State is with some things here. And I asked about I asked him to explain what the, the, the point of that last shot there. That's not good. That, I don't, that was a bad play call. It was bad execution of a bad play call. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, okay, this is a situation where, to your point, you don't want Dwayne Washington playing iso ball. In a situation where you either make the shot or you go to overtime, this is a situation where you allow Dwayne Washington to maybe go one-on-one. They didn't do that. They put a guy who's 5'11", tops, had him drive all the way into the paint amongst a bunch of trees thinking he was going to get some type of shot off where refs probably aren't going to call a foul in that situation. They're going to let the game decide itself. We've seen that time and time again. So, that's on Holtman. That's a bad play call that led to bad execution. That's not that's not a run that allowed that to happen. That's just you play, That's you having horrible game management and your player being in a bad position to make it a bad decision. And he said he made the point that we run that play a lot and CJ Walker just fumbled it, which I think might be like, okay, yeah, you run that play a lot. Maybe run something different because maybe they knew that was coming. But he also got testy about that. He uh-huh. also got testy about that. So here's the thing: they won. They won easily. Right. Credit to them for that. But again, Seth Towns hit a couple shots in overtime because he got wide open looks because they moved the ball. So they they fell apart to the extent that they were on the edge of losing. Once they caught their breath, credit to them for winning in overtime there. They got a little lucky for some other stuff that happened. They got a little unlucky that Kyle Young wasn't in that EJ Liddell had fouls. I get it. So we want to give them credit for this. But Nathan, I just I am always intrigued by I, I'm, I'll be curious to see where this team goes from here. Because if Chris Holtman can harness the, hey, we're a two seed and we're underdogs, the nobody believes in us stuff that Ryan Day loves to use and Urban Meyer loved to use even when everybody believed in them. If Holtman can get any of that stuff going, they are kind of like a two seed that like the the own fan base doesn't completely believe in to a degree. Maybe they can ride that a little bit because if they execute the way they execute in the first half of games, they can be a Final Four team. Watch them. They have all they have, they usually put five guys on the floor who, if they are getting open looks because their teammates are moving the ball, can hit open shots. They do not ever usually have a guy on the floor other than like 50 or 60 percent of Dwayne Washington who's going to make a shot pulling something out of nowhere. I'll be curious, Nathan, where the mind of this team is going to be going into the NCAA tournament and how Chris Holtman 
can mold it because there's an opportunity, I think, there for it to go anywhere, right? Final four. I don't think they're going to lose in the first round, but I think it could be final four or lose their second game. All that's out there for them. It's really interesting how you would choose to motivate because my way of doing it might be, I know that line says you're a two seed, but you guys have been on the verge of, I mean, you you had a four game losing streak and then that game against Minnesota and then that game against Purdue. Like you guys are not playing from beginning to end of every game, like a two seed. That's how I would probably motivate people. I would, and, and say, I think this next game um, and however many games they play left in the big 10 tournament, it's almost again, I guess if they were to win the whole thing, they could still be a one seed. Maybe, I don't know, but regardless of that, regardless of the outcome of the games, I think you just need to see them play a more complete game. If they play a more complete game where they're sharper on offense the whole time and, and, and allows them to get back and make more stops, then if even if they lose to Michigan, I think that puts them in a better uh, situation going into the NCAA tournament. I think they need to see it from for 40 minutes or 45, I guess, in today's case, but really 40, see it and be able to build off of that more than need to do just find a way to win. I think they need something to like regain some footing still going into this tournament. If they don't do that, Stephen, and then we'll let you get back to work. Like if they if they don't put a forty minute effort on the floor before they go into the NCAA tournament, is this going to be in the back of their heads because it's happened so many times that even if they get up ten in the NCAA tournament, is this going to linger in some way? I want to say no, based off the answer Dwayne Washington gave to that exact question. That they know it exists, but at the same time, I, I, there is a experience factor of trial and error where they've seen it work, where they pulled out some wins because of it, whether it was today or Minnesota or some games earlier in the season like Northwestern. But they've also had some moments where it's cost them, like the game against Purdue earlier this season or the Michigan State game. And so there's enough experience there to where it might not be a negative if they keep on this little trail here. But I do think they need to put, a, put together a full 40-minute game just so they can see they, they can do it again even if it does end up lose, end up with a loss to Michigan because Michigan's one of the three best teams in the country. But I think for me, I came out of that Michigan game thinking, okay, they lost, but this is a really darn good basketball team. Either way, this is a Final Four basketball team. They just lost to another Final Four caliber basketball team. Since then, I haven't felt that way. And so I, I just need to see it. Even if it ends with their, their, their Big Ten tournament run is over tomorrow, I just need to see full 40 minutes of – quality basketball that would let me know that in the last four minutes, if some things just go a different way, this could be a national title final four team. We'll, uh, we'll continue to talk about this. It's interesting. They're an interesting team. They are an interesting team and, and you don't know which way it's going to go. They're in a tough spot and I get it. I, it's, it's the worst place. Coaches can't stand it. It's like there's 300 freaking teams out there. We're like eighth or seventh or whatever. And like, we just won. We just beat a top 25 team that had beaten us twice. And it's like, everybody's asking what's wrong with us. Like the football team. Literally I get at it. this point. It's like I mean, covering I, the football team. I, like, I get it. I, I, I get if, if Chris Holtman's testy about that stuff. I get it. I get it. Um, but also when it's a pattern, when it's a pattern, it's, it's a little hard. It's, it's a hard to get away from that. So I think, I think it's reasonable to ask about it too, but this is a good win. I think it matters. There's the, the sort of the intangible stuff of a game. So I think some of the intangible stuff of today of this win over Purdue is not great, right? That, yeah, they came back, but like they might have it in the back of their head. The actual tangible stuff is like, I think they locked up a two seat. So like that stuff of like, hey, you'd rather, you know, your, your path gets slightly easier, right? In the NCAA tournament, that just mattered. They won. That mattered. So credit to them for doing that. 
Um, and Stephen, good luck. Uh, good luck in Indy. You got an, at least another day there, maybe a couple more and then many more after that. So we will continue to work in this basketball talk into Buckeye talk here and there. Don't go away. Nathan and I are going to come back and evaluate what we were doing a year ago on Buckeye talk, talking about the coming coronavirus, reliving some weird memories, thinking about the last year. That's next on Buckeye talk. All right, back on Buckeye talk. We wanted to just do a little bit of this. Because it's been a year since the pandemic, and Nathan, I still, it was one of the last things I did, and everybody's going through this. I actually think the sports writing world has overdone this a little bit. Like every single person I follow, every single sports section, except Cleveland.com, and like we don't get, we don't get caught up in the past a lot. We try to look forward for good or for bad, mostly for good, I think. You know, we didn't do a big like, what's how the sports world has changed in the last year? Because some of this is like, we're all living it together. So to be like, hey, and people was like, yeah, I know. Like, what are you telling me? The world has changed. I get it. I've been living it for a year. I don't need you guys to tell me about it. But personal reflections are interesting. The three of us, you, me, Stephen, were in our office in Columbus, which is how we used to do the pod, which is one of the things that's changed. We'll never do the pod that way again. It was three of us sitting around the microphone that I now use myself. Zoom is such a good way to do a pod. The idea that we ever like drove to an office so the three of us could be staring each other in the face, like for what? For worse sound quality? Like I don't, it, it blows my yeah. mind that we even did it that way. But we'll play. I have about a 12 minute chunk of the main COVID discussion. It was back when we only did one pod a week. It was like in the middle of a two hour podcast. It was talking about what we thought this, what might happen with spring football. We had a quite a long discussion about they were banning reporters from the locker room at the NCAA tournament and whether that was a big deal or not, or was it an intermediate step? I was very passionate about like, what are we talking about? That was a, a stupid. And I kept shouting, the world's going to shut down. So I, yeah, I look pretty good in this discussion. Mostly because I was like, I had been reading a ton of things and I'm a worry wart. And if you are a natural worrier, then you were right about this in a lot of ways because it got pretty stinking bad. What do you remember what do you think about what you thought and how it turned out? We're going to do a little bit of this. What are your thoughts? So we've done like 1,200 podcasts or whatever since then. It seems like, like I don't know how many it's been. Not 1,200, but but many, a couple hundred. And I don't remember very many of them, but I remember a lot of that conversation. And I remember that being the way that it we got into that conversation because I, unlike you, I, I was aware of the of the the pandemic. Um, being in, in Europe or wherever it was, it was kind of springing up at the time. Um, and that it was, you know, people were just kind of predicting on when it would come here, but, and that it had already kind of started to touch base here, but that was the, the, the crux of that conversation was there. The way I remember us getting into it was they're, they're keeping reporters out of the locker room as a way to combat this virus. And I thought that that was kind of silly. And I thought that that was um, sort of an excuse that if you were really that concerned about it, you would be going to greater depths than that, which they which they did very soon after that. Pretty soon it became not only reporters not going into locker room, we're not having games and leagues and tournaments and everything shut down. So um, I still think I'm kind of right. I'm, I'm curious to see how this all comes back in the future. If they use like this sort of concerns about public health to like further restrict access, which has been a thing that, people like us have been selfishly or unselfishly worried about for years because it's been happening. If that's going to be 
something that it continues to be restricted in the future. But it also is, you know, just sitting and watching a Big Ten tournament game this week and, and realizing that a year ago at this time, I, that, that eerie night where we were all watching that Nebraska game and Fred Hoiberg looks like he's just literally like one foot in the grave on the sideline. And, and we're all at that point, everybody was like, OK, now what what are we doing? Like this is, and he didn't, it turned out he didn't even have COVID, but like, it just looked like such a, a terrifying um, bout of like hubris or stupidity that we were all engaging in at that point to where that, that seemed to kind of be the moment. I, I remember that moment really starkly looking back one year. So that we didn't really know, we, we suspected it might be bad. Um, it was just a matter of what, to what degree you felt like that was imminent. You, and, and you were further along on that than, than I was at that point. So I think the thing that is the most interesting specifically, and I will say, it seems like we gotten a little bit of good response from our recruiting discussion the other day that you and I had, which was like journalistically centered in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, sometimes what we do affects what fans get, right? I mean, like that's all we are are conduits. So when a, when a team or a league is doing something that, we think negatively negatively affects us. It's it's negatively affecting the fans in some way. I so, think often, not to interrupt you, but I think often we do our jobs without always explaining why we're doing our jobs that way. And I think once in a while it's good to explain why we do things a certain way. So I think this is a you know that was how we covered that. This is an access issue, and that was the thing that you were concerned about. You know the specifics of what was happening in the moment. You were you were curious at the very least and perhaps concerned about the big picture effect here we have all covered sports for a year on zoom now you've gone to games they're going to still let us go to games but really the game coverage of where you watch the game from is not the main thing and if that ever changed they ever charged us to sit in the press box or whatever it's like i actually would be fine with that like i don't know that we have to get in for free we have to have a seat where we can see the game and we can like have our computers out and where we can watch the game in a way that a fan doesn't because we're working. We're not there for fun. But but I actually like that beyond that, however that comes. I mean, it's like we're sometimes we get treated too well, frankly. I think the old time thing of like, well, you've got to give them let everybody in for free and you've got to feed them and all this stuff. It's like, listen, it's a business. It's your business. It's our business. That's off track. What matters more is the daily access or lack of it. Who can we talk to? How can we talk to them? How does that affect the information we can gather? And how does that affect the stories that we can write, the podcast topics we can discuss for fans? After this last year, where are you on that? Are you worried about the future of access, of interview availability, of how we interact with Ohio State football and any other sports team? I don't know if worried is the right word, but certainly my antenna is up and it's, it's because, and this kind of goes back to what I was just saying about sometimes maybe not explaining what we do and how we do it. Like the most important things, the most important conversations we tend to have are not interviews, formal interviews, whether that's on zoom, whether that's in the team room at the Woody, um, whether it's around the, the, the round tables, it's like so much more valuable. Usually not that you don't sometimes get really interesting stuff out of that, but so much more valuable is, you're standing next to that circular table on the practice field and Pete Werner gets done with his interview portion and they say, okay, Pete's done. And then you're the guy who kind of walks up next to him and just sort of walks and you're maybe not even writing anything down or, or recording anything, but those conversations are so important. And we haven't had any of those. 
for a year now. And I, those are so critical to all reporters who cover beats as far as really getting down to the essence of what's going on with the team at any time. Not that they're usually giving you, it's not that they're just spilling team secrets all the time, but you just get a different, you get a different impression of a team. And, and, and sometimes when people are less guarded, when they're not in front of a crowd of people, like those sorts of things are really important. And I'm still optimistic that as the vaccinations continue to spread, that we will return to a time when that will, that will, that access will be there again. I think common sense should prevail eventually. And people can be like, okay, well, there's no reason why everybody can't be in the same room again and we can move forward. I don't think like the barriers and the, the spacing will be in the press box, all that stuff. So I'm optimistic that that will get there, but I'm also cynical enough and have seen access dwindle over the years enough that I'm concerned that because we've had this break and people see that zoom works as well as it does, as far as just holding interviews and stuff that they might just keep that. And it's not like there haven't been advantages to that for us too. Like I, it saves us all time to just have to go to our, our bedroom or whatever and get on zoom as opposed to having to get dressed and go down to the Woody and wait around. Um, so there are benefits to it too, but the costs in the long run are greater. And I hope that, that as a sport as, or as a, as a nationwide of, of, of all sports, I hope that they don't use this as a reason to make this the permanent when we could, from a common sense standpoint, go back to the way things were. I'm going to be, I'm going to be straight up here with the listeners. At least once in the last couple months, I, as you have stood up to like let your dog out of the room, I have caught the Nathan Beer, Nathan Baird dressed top pajama pants bottom. Right now. Right now. Uh, right now. I've got I right now I've got a button-up shirt, but it's over. You can you can actually see it. I didn't realize at first, but this like ratty t-shirt that has holes in it that you could see if we were doing this, if we were recording this video. And then yeah, pajama pants below. I didn't know if you were in pajama pants for like 20% of our Zooms oh, or like 90% of our Zooms. Much higher. Especially, but partially because we've, we've shifted to doing them more in the morning. I, I, now, I will say, but also we're old. We go at 11 a.m. We're not going at like 9. Like 11 no, but like that's late morning. It is, but it's like it's like 9 is like I get up, I have breakfast, I... Um, I'm reading things in the morning or trying to, sometimes I'm trying to work on getting something written, but usually it's like, I'll go straight from, from breakfast to preparing for the podcast. Like I'm actually trying to read up on yeah. things, take notes and stuff like that. So like, I, it's like, why am I going to sacrifice time out of that to like, go get cleaned up and put on pants? You can win. Yeah. Nobody can see it. The sacrifice it's just efficiency. If you it's, show it's, up, it's, I have a very high adjusted wardrobe efficiency rating. You just, you just I, Ken Palm, hard. I am way high on Ken Palm on adjusted <laughs> wardrobe efficiency. That would be, and it's, it's like, it's one of those things in a job interview. What's your greatest fault? It's like, I work too hard. I'm, I work so hard. I can't <laughs> put on pants. Nathan Baird, fuck I talk. Um, yep. So, so the issue, I don't think there's going to be like actual lingering health effects. I mean, if it's like, there's a reason that like, we can't like interview people because it's still a health issue. Again, it's not a journalism issue. It's a world issue. I hope that's done. I'm assuming that's done. I hope you're right. It's just a matter of did they stumble on something here that they think, oh, well, there's no reason to have live interviews. Zooms work. And is it in the school's interest? And again, college sports are different. Is it in the school's interest to be like, well, we don't want you walking with a guy. 
we don't want little secret conversations, right? Like you're the, of course we like, we like those the best. They probably like those the least. So you put them on zoom and you don't have those anymore. So like, that's right. Oh, that's really what we're talking about, Nathan, that that's where your (laughs) concerns would rest. I was having a conversation yesterday with another reporter about a a topic of, of Ohio state interest. And they said, um, well, I was, I, I ran into so-and-so or an, an AD the other day, not an Ohio State AD, another, another school. And I was like, what do you mean you just ran into him? Like, you can't be like, we can't just like mingle around because it's, it just feels like so removed now. But I think they're in a different um, place or different attitude towards the, the restrictions right now where they are. So I, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I just, at Ohio State, they, they don't seem to mind when we have those conversations and they kind of, you know, understand that within reason that that's just part of why we have these gaggles. Um, but as by and large, I don't trust the people in power across college sports or professional sports to not use any excuse they can to keep the media farther and farther away. I do think Ohio State's pretty good about that. Michigan has really curtailed access a lot in the last several years. And every time Michigan instead of having an interview session has like somebody from their athletic department interview somebody and they post that on their school website. And that's a stand in for an actual session where the outside reporters get to ask interviews. That makes my stomach turn. And Michigan is way far down that road in a way that Ohio state is not at all. So I want to credit Ohio state for that. Ohio state for a major program has pretty darn good access for a major program with a ton of people covering the team. And it's much easier. You would know it at Purdue. I mean, I think at Clemson, it's much easier. It's in a smaller town in South Carolina. They don't have 14 outlets that cover Ohio state full time. Like we do here. And we could run through them right now. We should do that someday. What's the beat really like people would like that. Cause we get, we get real on that. We could have other people from other beats. I mean, from other outlets come on and talk about what a jerk I am. I would actually, it might be easier if I wasn't here, but I would enjoy listening to it. If it was you and Steven and other people telling stories about what a jerk I am, I'm that might that be down. a very Doug vacation week. I will be like in Disney world with earbuds in being like, this is good content. This is good content. So it's like the magic mountain ride or whatever. And you're just like screaming and like all these yeah. kids are having fun. Like it's a small world after all. And you're like, who said that? But, but I, I don't know that I could even push back on anything. I think I'd be like, well, yeah. that's true. I don't know. I mean, let's be honest. That's correct. That's a correct view of me. So I do think because of Michigan, like I'm on alert, right? Because it's another big program in the big 10 and like Penn state does it different because their their outlets are scattered all over the state. They do a lot of zoom stuff. They do not do a lot of, or they used to do conference calls. They don't do as much in-person stuff. We do a pretty good amount of in-person open flow. Here's a guy, talk to him. Right. And sometimes, I mean, and you're right. When we're around a table for 18 minutes with a guy and there's 14 different reporters around the table, and it feels like you're smothering this 20 year old football player sometime. And it's like, Oh, uh. but it's, it's actually, it's better than the alternatives. I don't know what the perfect alternative is. I, the one thing I mentioned this and, and, and I mentioned this to somebody the other day and they pushed back and disagreed. I think locker rooms are actually a mess. I'm not sure. Well, it's because of old time stuff, but the idea of like, well, we must be able to interview half naked players because otherwise, how could we ever talk to them? 
I actually am not super in on. I don't know why it is the way it is. I covered the Olympics once. When you're at the Olympics, you don't interview people in locker rooms. They have a media area and you stand at ropes and people come down and there is a a media area to interact with people. And athletes are required to come through certain areas. And if they want to linger with you, they can and you can get stuff off to the side. But the idea that we have to be in the room where they change to do that, because I've been around it enough, I've done it for baseball. I've done it for basketball. I've done it for football. The Browns right now, the Browns have their interview mic stand in the middle of the locker room. And it's like, okay, everyone's going to interview Baker Mayfield. We don't go to Baker Mayfield's locker. And if you try to go to Baker Mayfield's locker, a lot of the time he's not super into it, but yet you are standing with him at a microphone where 13 other guys are around the room, like in their private room, trying to do whatever, maybe get, and then they're they're not naked all that much. I mean, it's the, for practice stuff, it's whatever. I don't know. It's so, and there's stuff that's come up. Baseball clubhouses are toxic. This has come up with what's happening with the Indians. I covered a baseball clubhouse for four years. I was in there every day. It was 25 years ago. It was very different back then. It can be a very toxic environment. They do not want you in there. And no, the reporters don't particularly want to be in there because they don't want me. I don't want them. I'm just trying to do my job. But I'm not sure why it's not the case that there's a half an hour window before every baseball game where there's an interview room. That's how they do it now with Terry Francona and the Indians. When I covered baseball, you sat in the manager's office for 90 minutes before every game and just shot the breeze. 95% of it was off the record. And that's what you did. It was the least productive thing ever, but that's what we did. That's not what they do anymore. Terry Francona comes in and he sits in a separate media room for 15 or 20 minutes and you talk about baseball and then he's done. And if you really need something, you can follow Tito out in the hall and ask him something. I don't know why that's not how it is with baseball. Every day, there's six players in the interview area. They have to come sit in a chair for half an hour. You can request guys. You can get one-on-one time. You can get off to the side time. Why do we have to stand around with guys who are changing in any sport? I, I, I don't know why, other than evolution, and that's how it was 50 years ago when everybody was in the locker room smoking together. Ah, what happened in the game today? I'm a sports writer. It's silly. So that's not what college is. And sometimes we just talked about, actually, I'm going to play the clip. I'm going to play the last 12 minutes from this podcast will be from a year ago, the conversation we had. And we were talking about the lost access of the locker room at the Big Ten tournament at bowl games. That's so great because we don't get it at Ohio State. It's not great because you're in the locker room. It's great because you can get anybody you want. It's not controlled. It's not controlled. Now, if it was you were in a different room and after everybody got dressed, Before they went to the bus, they had to walk from the locker room to the bus and they went through the interview room and they had to hang out for like at least five minutes so that people could grab them. And if somebody grabbed them for 12 minutes, then so be it. I don't know why we're in the locker room with 20 year old guys who are getting dressed. It's bonkers to me. It's the access. It's not the place. So I do think, Nathan, I worry about controlled access that we can't talk to these guys where they can open up a little bit, where it can be one-on-one where there's a Mac, not a microphone jammed in your face that I do worry about. 
I would love if this started an actual real discussion about why any reporter, male or female, is in any locker room, because it doesn't make any sense to me. Let's find a better way to create an area for journalists and athletes to interact. And, and to, to, to bring this back to what we were talking about a, a year ago, and just, again, the kind of the varying perspectives that people maybe had as we crept up into the final days before things really hit home, I think I think I was correct, and you're kind of saying the same things now, that it was something to be worried about for the long term, but you were correct in telling me in that moment, who cares if you're right? Like, that's not what's important right now. Like, the plague is coming, and and there were people who had a better grasp of that in the moment, um, and, and you had a better grasp of it in the moment than I did, because pretty soon, obviously, it, it got so bad that nobody was playing games and it didn't matter, so... That, that is really interesting. And, and I was talking to my wife about this the other day that um, and we're getting maybe way off topic, but I'm really curious, like as we're getting this, hopefully knock on wood fixed, people are getting vaccinated. It, it's going to things are kind of kind of hopefully start snowballing in a good way for once after a year. But what happens next time? The next time there's another something that comes up, does this experience if it comes in a short term, how do we react as a society and do we automatically maybe um, overreact rather than, you know what I'm saying? Or does going through this once before, does it help us go through the next one? Cause it seems inevitable that something will come up, whether it's five or 20 or a hundred years again. Well, yeah, well, I mean, that's the, I think it's a big difference. I mean, a hundred years, we had one a hundred years ago. And we didn't learn squat right. from it because nobody well, was still alive from what it, we didn't learn squat. But society was completely flu. different over the past a hundred years too. I mean, there'd have been the world doesn't even it's hard to compare it. No, I know. But like, there's still the lessons. Everybody read this stuff at the beginning. You looked at the Philadelphia. No, Philadelphia. What? Well, there was like a city that shut down and there was a city that didn't shut down. And the city that shut down had a minuscule number of cases of the Spanish flu compared to the city that let everything happen. So it was like, hey, hey, you got to shut down. And you got to do stuff. And you got and you can go back and find photos and stuff of people wearing masks in 1918. Didn't mean we were smart about it now. True. Now, yep. if it happens 20 years from now and all of us who lived through it, I think we will be better. I mean, and like, and I think overreacting is actually the right thing. What does even overreacting mean? It's like you overreact, you put everything in place until you figure it out and then you ease off. I hope we do. I mean, like that's like, that makes more sense than underreacting until you oh, figure I, it out. I guess overreacting. And I've, I think you and I have been of like mind for how society should be treating this for the most part. But overreacting, I just meant like something that, is not as serious as what COVID yeah. is being treated as if it is. That's what no. I meant by overreacting. And there's a push and pull in society. And this is not a society podcast, but I mean, I think there's a push and pull. And I'm not saying, I mean, you've got to have the push and pull, you know, I don't, I wouldn't want it to be that like every time there was a, a variant of a virus that we didn't quite understand, you couldn't leave your house for a month, no matter what. I mean, that's not it either. Right. I mean, everything, everybody wants to talk black and white and everything is great. So what is um, to, to kind of bring this back to a sports time? Maybe this is jumping it off of, of just talking about those 12 minutes last year. But w what's your prediction of how many fans we'll see in Ohio Stadium this fall? So I was having this conversation with someone yesterday. Uh, full capacity. I think I think it might be. If we are at a point where uh, the vaccine should be available to every adult by May 1st. Then I mean, like, again, like, show me where that's not it. I'm not sure I want to live in a world like what's the scenario where it's like, well, the vaccine's available to everybody, but that still wasn't enough. What? Like, what are you talking about? That wasn't enough. 
Uh, the, the one thing that I think I understand what people are concerned about is if we're if the rules still vary state by state within the Big Ten, does that matter? Because that obviously mattered last year when the Big Ten set its policy. So that's maybe the one thing I'm keeping an eye on. But I just I, I have a lot more optimism, growing optimism that things will be fairly normal this fall in terms of just the call the daily college football experience. And maybe you wear a mask, but that's okay. Like maybe I think maybe there's a world where it's like as we get back to fully, fully normal, whatever that means, that there's a normal where it's like everything's open. You can do everything you want. It's not a mandate, but a lot of people wear masks. I think that's possible that like you're sitting there in Ohio Stadium around strangers and you have a mask on, but you can be there. And then when you're eating popcorn, you pull it down. But if you're just sitting there doing nothing, why wouldn't you have it on? I think that's possible. And that certainly not everybody will, but some people will. And if that helps, I mean, listen, flu cases are down, right? Because people are wearing masks. Like the, the common flu, there are fewer cases of that right now. So there is an advantage. I mean, it's like, doesn't mean, I don't think that means we're supposed to live in a world where we wear a mask 100% of the time for your whole life because people like faces. Fuck, I talk. But as we're easing back in, I think that's, I think that's maybe there. And they'll, they'll have awesome. If that's the case, man, you'll be able to buy, you could, you'll be able to buy a mask. Maybe you can now. Can you buy a mask that looks like an Ohio State football helmet with Buckeye leaves on it and like everybody's wearing that together? I don't know. That'd be cool. All right. We're going to end with this. We're going to end like maybe for the first time ever. We're not going to end with that was Buckeye talk because I'm going to give that now. And then if you don't want to hear it, we're going to, we're going to give you sound quality is a little iffy, but it's interesting to some. The 12 minute Our sound quality has been improved by COVID, I would say. That's true. This is from, it's either, it's March 10th or March 11th last year. It's the last in-person podcast that we had. We did it on the day as Mike DeWine was announcing, no, we're going to have restrictions for NCAA tournament games that are played in Ohio. And then clearly, very quickly, things went south after that. So we're going to end with that. We'll just let that peter out. So in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this. We've sort of fit a couple different pieces of this podcast together. Uh, and we'll be back. We have a really crazy topic for the Tuesday podcast related that I think we're going to do. And I did more research on it, and it's even crazier than I thought. And it's related to Woody Hayes and Bob Knight and what happened to the Ohio State football program and the Indiana basketball program after they left. And I think that will be our Tuesday pod. And if not, we'll do it at some point. All right. Thanks to you guys for listening. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. The first four in Dayton for the NCAA tournament is in Ohio, and the governor of Ohio just said, don't go to games. Um, We have a couple questions on this. We're not experts on this. A lot of people are not experts on this. Um, It's a lot of speculation, and and we're not afraid to speculate here because it's a sports podcast and it just, you know, for giggles. But the information changes so quickly that there could be actual hard news about some of this stuff. So... Three tech subscriber questions about coronavirus, and then we'll move on. From the 614, what happens if Ohio State or another major college football program keeps practicing and it leads to a coronavirus breakout? Do we think this will cause significant change in how programs conduct their business this spring or beyond? Second question from the 260, do you think they will cancel the spring football game, which is scheduled for April 11th, due to coronavirus? Question three, any insight on whether Ohio State will cancel the spring game from the 813? Nathan, you talked to Ohio State people about this on Tuesday morning. What's the latest on the spring game as we record this at 250 
Tuesday afternoon. Well, the latest is there really isn't a latest. It's, you know, they are think I, I, I texted about this earlier, and I think they're doing the prudent thing by just saying, we're watching this, we'll let you know if we decide to change. But as of right now, they haven't changed anything. Um, so as of right now, the spring game is happening with spectators. As of right now, because uh, I sent like a list of questions about various things, whether it's a spring game, the coaches clinic, recruiting, and I kind of just got a blanket answer. Hey, nothing's changing right now. Um, and there's obviously this could go in any number of ways. I I, I would be well, you may be getting to this question later, but as of right now, nothing has changed. Those are all the questions. So from what Governor DeWine said, I'm. I'm freaked out about this, so I've been reading a boatload about it. It does seem like I, I understand the difference between an outdoor event and an indoor event. When you have germs, if you're outdoors, you're just you have more room for the germs to like get away from everybody, rather than being in an indoor event. So I understand the idea that I think the, a football spring game has a better chance of going on than an indoor basketball game. Um, the thing that there's two, just basically two things I want to address here. One is. Um, a lot of the sports leagues, their initial step with this was to ban locker room access. And that has happened very quickly. Um, I understand that some sports writers, I saw a full column in USA Today about this. Some sports writers had a very negative reaction to the idea of why are you banning media from the locker room? Is this a step toward maybe banning media permanently from the locker room that you conduct interviews in hallways and that kind of thing rather than having that locker room access? People got very fired up about it. What did you think about that step? As a sports writer, we don't have locker room access in college. At the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament, you do, which is why that's so great, because you can talk to everybody. You do not get that during the regular season at Ohio State in either sport. That's why we love the Big Ten championship game and the bowl games, because you get locker room access to anybody after those games. What did you think about that move as a sports writer? I have the same concern that a lot of other sports writers do, that this is seen as a temporary measure right now and then just becomes permanent. They just decide not to go back to it. And again, at, for our level, I mean, it would be great to have open locker rooms. But if you cover the NBA, if you cover Major League Baseball, the open locker room is critical to doing your job and to giving all of you guys the information that you get about these teams. It's 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 written into the collective bargaining agreements for those sports. You go in before games, that's when you get, like, more opportunity to like sit down with a guy the more in-depth stories come out of that it doesn't come out of quick things at a locker after the game or certainly not at a podium you know where you can really do substantial reporting and build relationships is at these open locker rooms prior to games that's when it's a really critical component of our jobs and i would argue a critical component of um the players being able to communicate with the outside world, with fans and everything, even in the era of social media, I still think that's an important outlet. So I, I share those concerns. I am not as, as we talked about a couple weeks ago with uh, the feces being everywhere. I'm not that much of a germ guy. I'm not that freaked out about this. You wash your hands, you, you take precautions. I think I'll be okay. Famous last words. But I, I, my greater concern is that, leagues or teams or whatever will use this as a way to put up a permanent barrier when it really is just a, a temporary concern. As a guy who's getting ready to go to an event where it's, where open locker rooms are, are basically the reason why it's such a big deal, you just put, put on it. You get better answers in locker room access than you would, especially in college where with Ohio State basketball, everything's at a podium the day before the game. And 
you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, you put them on a podium up there and we're looking at them. It's the answers are decent, but they're not going to be as great as they would be. If it was just me and the player, maybe one other reporter is talking to them as well. But for the most part, it's me and that player having a conversation where the answers are just better and it makes for better reporting. And like, if you're going okay, to, nobody's arguing that it's good. I mean, everybody agrees locker access is better, but do you do you understand the step they made? No, I get it for now. I don't. Yeah. But, I don't understand the step okay. they made. No. You don't. You you for, do for the moment, and since this is like it, it, every with everybody freaking out about it, I get it for the moment, as long as it's temporary. I don't get it because keeping me out of a locker room. I mean, so then, but, but what about all the other people that a professional athlete interacts with over the course of a day? Whether it's people at Chipotle and it's the people in their apartment building and it's their Uber driver and it's the other people who work at the um, arena who aren't being like quarantined and having to go through a Silkwood shower every time they go in and out of a room before they interact with these athletes. I think it's just an overreaction. I don't know why the media is being treated differently than any of the other people that they interact with over the course of the day to end up doing their job. Okay, so this is going to sound like, I don't mean this to sound personal because I'm I have a strong opinion on this. So you and I disagree on this. Um, I don't like when journalists get like this because this thing is shutting down the world. Yeah. And if your concern is that I can't go in a locker room, pull your head out of your butt. Yeah. It's not this, shutting down no, the world. No, it, it is. is it's shutting down to, the world. Italy yeah, it not. Is. Italy it is. is shut down. Italy is shut down. Mother- Italy... Ten days ago, had the same number of cases that the United States had. We are at the tip of the iceberg, yeah. and complaining about locker room access two days from now, when the country shuts down, is going to seem so trivial and meaningless. And that someone took time in USA Today to write a whole outrage column about locker room access. This is the world. This is people's lives. We are going to have a lot of disruption. There is going to be a lot of disruption. I'm just reading stuff, but I've read a lot of stuff because I'm diabetic. And if you're diabetic, you have like a 10% higher chance of dying from this if you get it. So everybody in the world who's like, well, as long as you're not old or sick, it's like, oh, okay, great. Everyone who's perfectly healthy is fine. Oh, okay. Well, like 60% of America has an underlying disease. So I am, I hate it. I hate it when journalists think that journalism comes ahead of life. Well, hold on. But you're talking about so... two different things, though. No, we're not no, talking we're not. about different it's, things. It's, it's we're different. talking about being outraged about closing down a locker room. It's an intermediate step. These these athletic leagues and everybody else, it is a multi-gazillion dollar business. And they're going to have to make some very hard decisions about this. Governor DeWine just said there's Dayton. There's a Cleveland regional for the yeah. NCAAs. They're saying don't Dude. go to sporting events. We are on the way. We are on the way to something. This is an easy, intermediate, early step. It is not going to be the last step. It is not going to end with there's no media access to locker rooms, but everything else happens at normal. More is going to happen. Much, much, much more. And to be outraged for two days about this, it is the absolute kind of journalistic behavior. I defend journalism to the nth degree. But when you think that, like, journalism, well, you can't mess with journalism – Italy, you can't leave your house in Italy. But, oh, how dare I not be able to go in a locker room? It is such small potatoes. I cannot believe somebody spent a whole column in USA Today being outraged. When you're at a point where colleges are calling 
kids who are like doing a, a, a semester abroad, studying abroad, and saying you have to. Come Ohio home. State shut down classes. You every college Kent State is- just did it as well. Like when you're doing that, when you're calling kids who, who are getting an education, saying you no longer allowed to stay over there because of this thing. That's more than just you know. So stuff. But I would say I would still say though it, it's it's even if I concede that I think it's a warranted reaction now, I can I still reserve the right to be worried what the long-term ramifications are for the profession that I... Let's worry about... And, and we can worry about that when, like, the world's not on lockdown anymore. Like, when we get past this, if sports leagues try to say, well, where did this... Okay, let's have that fight then. In the meantime, let's try to have people not die from this. So that's... I suppose, but I guess, I guess again, I still just don't see if... Maybe you'll be... Maybe, maybe a week from now we'll be right, and there will be places shutting down and, and, and you can't go to Chipotle anymore, but... We'll see. Um, what do we think? Let's make final predictions based on nothing. Do you think the spring game will be played? And what do you think the ramifications will be for the NCAA basketball tournament? We don't have we don't have any knowledge about this, so it's just gut reaction. People are talking about it. We're let's have it like be a ten second answer from all of us, so we can get back to sports. Effect on the spring game for Ohio State. Effect on the NCAA basketball tournament. I think. As long as they're going to keep practicing, as long as the football team's not going to stop practicing, then the spring game will happen. It just may not have spectators. And it may not have media. I think the Ivy League already shut down its conference tournament, and whoever won the regular season is just going to go to the tournament. I think that we could, if this is headed in the direction I think it's headed in, it could be limited to just, like, the necessary people. So, like, people working the event, the players, the coaches, and maybe media at the NCAA tournament games, I don't know if there will be crowds. My prediction is no crowds at NCAA turn- any NCAA tournament game, at least the opening weekend. Yeah. Because that's where you have eight different teams in an arena. You have people from all over the country. Coming um, in and out. And I think there's going to be enough uncertainty that they'll go that route, and then maybe they'll allow it by the time you get to the regional finals or the final four. My guess would be no crowds for any NCAA basketball game, and that the spring game will go on as normal as an outdoor event, and that it's April 11th. You've got enough lead time on that. I think maybe people will think they have stuff figured out by then. That's a prediction based on nothing. Let's get now to basketball. That was a little, little world, real-world dip, but none of us are projecting that like games are going to be canceled, right? Because there's a lot of TV revenue at yeah. stake here, and that yeah. is a, a next-level step. You well, certainly can play and not have the people there. Exactly. And with, and with the spring game, I feel like there's less. I know it gets a big crowd. It gets tens of thousands of people, but it's less of a logistical issue for people traveling to see the game, whatever, than it is for, I think, a regular home game. So you can wait before you make any You can definitely wait. And when people are spending five bucks for the ticket, right. you can decide the day before. And it, right. people would not be outrageously outraged. And even with a lot of these, like, first and second round, like, spots for the tournament aren't in, like, major city, major, major cities where, the, you know, it's like the local people in the place. And, like, most people are still going to watch it on TV at home. So. All right, here we go. Basketball question. 